the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Enjoy. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
now about that day and the hour. No one knows except even the angels of heaven, except the Father, only. But just as in the days of Noah, will so we be at the coming of the Son of Man. For as they were in the days before the flood, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered into the ark, and they knew not until the flood came and swept away every person, so also will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. At that time, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two are grinding at the millstone. One is taken, the other is left. So you must keep on being watchful because you do not know what hour the Lord is coming. But you must know this, that if the master of the house had known in what watch the thief is coming, he would have watched and not permitted his house to be broken into. For this reason you must also be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect him. Is there yet any power in the name of Jesus? Has he passed us by? It was two months after Jesus' resurrection. And two of the disciples, Peter and John, were going up to the temple to pray. It was, it was time for the evening sacrifice. And there was a man who'd been carried there by his family. He'd been lame since the time of his birth. He was born lame. He'd never walked. And now he's 40 plus years old. He's made his living by begging for alms at the Gate Beautiful. And as Peter and John are about to enter into the temple, he asks for alms. And Peter and John look intently at him and say, look at us. And he gave them their full attention, his full attention because he, he believed they were going to give him some money. But Peter said, silver and gold, I don't have. But what I have, I'll give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you must rise up and walk. And having taken hold of him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and was walking around and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. 
they recognized him as the man who'd been laying year after year at the gate beautiful. They were filled with wonder and amazement. And so they ran quickly to where he was following him. They wanted to hear what happened. Now, Peter begins to preach. I'll read it for you out of Acts, the third chapter, and I'm going to read you from read to you from a literal text as close to word for word as possible. He begins to confront them. Men, Israelites, why are you wondering at this? Or why do you keep gazing at us as if by our own power or godliness we'd made him walk? The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied him in the presence of Pilate. He having decided to release him, but you denied the Holy and Righteous One and requested a man, a murder, to be released to you. But you killed the originator of life, whom God raised up from among the dead, of which we are witnesses. And by faith in his name, this man, whom you see and know, was made strong by his name. And the faith through him gave to him this complete soundness before you all. Now there's power in that name. The name of Jesus, this lame man from from birth, 40 years lame, couldn't walk, had to be carried. He was healed. Now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all of his prophets, that his Christ was to suffer, he has fulfilled. Consequently, you must repent and must turn around for your sin to be wiped away so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And did you catch it? The power in the name of Jesus came through faith in that name, but also as an opportunity to say you must repent and turn from your sins. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So I ask again, is there is there any power yet today remaining in the name of Jesus? It's obvious we desperately need the times of refreshing. It's very clear. We're on a collision course with destiny. We are crashing and burning in America. Every evil thing is being praised as though it were holy, and every holy thing is being cast down as being evil. And now even major companies like Coca-Cola 
Verizon, PayPal. Major companies in America are siding with the evil and are supporting it. I'm astonished that that companies that should be interested in selling their product to everyone is now alienating more than half of America. I pray those companies will go bankrupt. I'd love to see Coca-Cola go bankrupt. Verizon has gotten too big for its own pants. It's no longer a phone service. It's now a political force. It's now a a moral force in America. Are you kidding me? So, I want to take you today to the question, is there any power yet in the name of Jesus? It would appear that there is no power. It would appear that that time has passed, and some churches even teach that there is, in fact, no power in the name of Jesus, that we should not expect miracles, we should not expect much of anything from the name of Jesus, because that was just for that time and not for today. That's troubling to me, and it's troubling to me that I see so so little evidence of power in the name of Jesus. I want to read one more passage of Scripture before I really dive into what I'd like to share with you. This is... Acts, the third chapter, verse 26. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him as a blessing to you by turning away each one of you from your sinfulness. I want to be clear with you. I believe there is fabulous power, unlimited power in the name of Jesus And I believe it's still unlimited. But we need to be clear about what Jesus came to do. First John tells us that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Well, sickness is one of the works of the devil. This lame man was afflicted by the devil. And so when we look at the issue, we don't see those miracles happening today very often. Once in a while, I have on occasion prayed for a person and they have been healed, but it's not the norm. And frankly, I don't think it is for any of the rest of you either. So what's wrong? This morning in my prayer closet, I was crying out to the Lord about the veil that seems to have dropped over the American church. 
and there seems to be a great deal of distance between the American church and the person of Jesus. God raised up his servant Jesus because he had sent him to be a blessing to you by turning away each one of you from your sinfulness. We're going to come back to that. That's a key issue. Chapter 4, as they're speaking to all of the people in the temple, in the court, a large area, the priests and the captains the temple police, the Sadducees, they approached the disciples in this crowd and they were very upset. They were upset because they were teaching the resurrection from the dead by Jesus. Now, Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees did, but the Sadducees didn't. And the priests certainly do not want Jesus proclaimed as someone who will raise someone from the dead or heal someone. They wanted Jesus to be forgotten. And if he were in the grave, he could have been forgotten. But he was not in the grave. He arose from that grave. Now, They didn't talk with them. They just had the temple police arrest them. They were careful because they didn't want the people to stone them because they believed what the disciples had done was of God. It was late in the afternoon. This evening was coming on. And so they put them in prison. Now, number of men who had believed now came to about 5,000. Now, just a side note, 5,000 men in that day, there would be another 5,000 women and easily another 5,000 children. You've got a church now running almost 15,000 people after only two months from the time of the crucifixion of Jesus. And of course, the first period of that time was taken up with Jesus walking with his disciples and then going up into the sky in the clouds and then waiting 10 days for the anointing of the Holy Spirit to come. Literally, this all has happened almost overnight. 15,000 people in the New Testament church. This is shaking Jerusalem. And it's very, very disturbing to the keepers of the status quo. They can easily see that they are going to be blown away and Rome is going to come and take away their position and their power. 
So on the next day, the rulers, the elders, the scribes, they all gathered together in Jerusalem. I mean, they brought even the big gun, Annas. He was Caiaphas' father. There's John and Alexander. Every one of the high priest's family was there because the high priest was an appointed position by Rome because they were able to buy the position. So this family had invested everything in the holding of the priesthood because it was very profitable. So they stood them before this tribunal and they began asking questions. By what power or by what name did you do this? By what power did you perform this miracle? Now, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if today we are being questioned for a good deed with reference to a disabled man, by what means he has been healed, it must be known to you all and to all of the people of Israel that in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that is, Jesus the Messiah of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from among the dead by means of, of him, this man, by means of him, this man has stood before you whole. This is the stone, having been rejected with contempt by you, the one's building, the one having become the head for the cornerstone. And there is no salvation by any other because there is no other name of a different kind having been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, what Peter has just said is stunning. Consider. He has now confronted them with the fact that they nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. And that it was by means of this man that this man was healed. It was through Jesus, the name of Jesus, that this man is healed. This man, Jesus, is the, is the cornerstone. You rejected him. And now they make the most stunning claim that no one wants to hear in America today. There's no salvation by any other because there is no other name of a different kind having been given men by means of which we must be saved. They would say they are saved by the sacrifice of their lamb, by their 600 and some rules that govern their lives. They would say that their religion is what will save them. And Peter is saying, it is not your religion that will save you. It is only the man you crucified who has the possibility of saving you. 
and you must deal with this man. Well, they don't want to deal with this man. They want to keep the structure of their culture and of their society, and they want to keep the disciplined structure of their lives. And this Jesus has come, and he is destroying all of that, and he is creating something that they have no imagination to understand. There's no other name under heaven by which a man can be saved. There is no Allah. There's no Buddha. There's no Hindu God. Shintoism. None of these can save a man. There is only, Peter is saying, one door into the heavenly realm of safety, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus, Christ means Messiah. Jesus, Messiah, is the only name under heaven by which men can be saved. Well, saved from what? Saved from death. We live in a time in the eons of history when there is 100% mortality rate, all men die. All women die. All children will die. We all face death. I remember watching a very popular comedian and he was asked well what do you what do you think's going to happen to you when you die well he said i'm i'm going to go to a much better place well what was that false hope built on he was a jewish man but not an observant jewish man just a jewish man and he believed the lie that when he died, he was going to a much better place. The fact is, when he died, he did not go to a better place. He went to hell. He was not a believer in Jesus. There's only one door into heaven, and that is through the name, through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, saved from death, but that's not an adequate answer. It's very clear in the scripture, and I'm going to show you several places. We read already Acts, the third chapter, where it says, consequently, you must repent and turn around. Some translate it, you must repent and be converted but it's not a passive in the Greek. It's an active. Literally, you must repent and you must turn yourself around for your sins to be wiped away so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Then again, I read to you 
chapter 3 of Acts, verse 26. Jesus was sent to be a blessing to you by turning each of you away from your sinfulness. And then again in verse 12, and there's no salvation by any other because there is no other name of a different kind having been given by men which w- by which we must be saved. Well, how do we deal with what appears to be almost a total lack of power? In the name of Jesus, it's almost as though all of the power has been drained away. Yes, it looks like that, but why? I want to suggest to you the reason there's so little power to be found in the name of Jesus is that Jesus' name first and foremost must be used to break the power of sin in our lives. If you go back to Matthew Matthew, the 24th chapter. Now about that day, verse 36, that is the coming of Jesus. And the hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, except the Father only. But just as the days of Noah were, so it will be even at the coming of the Son of Man. For as many were in the the days before the flood, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered into the ark and they knew not until the flood came and swept away every person. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. What's Jesus saying to us? He's saying that at the end of time, it will be very much like in the days of Noah. And people will be doing all of the normal things that people do. Their attention will be on on the flesh world. Eating, drinking their favorite beverage. It will be on buying and selling, buying a house, selling property. It will be on the whole process of of living. Going to the job. Having a to-do list. This is what I have to do today. And so you, you do that. And then, and then what? When I was a little boy, my father said, come here, Ray, I want to show you something. So I came. He called me Raymond. 
Come here, Raymond. I want to show you something. So I went over to where he was at the kitchen sink, and he drew a glass of water. And he went over to the table, and he set it down on the table. I'm wondering, what's Daddy doing? And then he put his finger, he had a big hand, he put his big finger down in that water. And then he took it out. And he said to me, Raymond, where was my finger? I said, it was in the water, Daddy. Well, but where is it in the water now? Well, it's not in the water now. He said, don't you get it? Raymond, someday, sooner than later, I'm going to die. And today, I have to go to work. I have to stop and get some groceries. And he went on and listed all of the things he needed to do in that day. And he said, but Raymond, the day I die, Who will miss what I've been doing? Daddy, the water's all going to come back together, and it's going to be as though you never lived. And we're just going to remember you. He said, yes, that's right. All of my busyness is not going to matter, is it, Raymond? No, Daddy, it's not. So I looked at him and I said, well, well, Daddy, what matters? He said, oh, I wanted you to ask me that question. Let me tell you what matters, Raymond. What matters is what I do for Jesus. Because that will last for eternity. He said, Raymond, that's why we do Bible studies with families during the week. I always went with my daddy to do Bible studies with different families. He said, what matters is what we do for Jesus. Everything else, you take your finger out of the glass and it's as though you were never here. Your property is all disposed of. Your things are gone. People remember your name, perhaps, for a while, and then they forget your name. I just found out that my, my grandpa's name was Ellsworth. I never knew that before. He died before I was born. Grandma, I knew that name because Dad often talked about Grandma. Her name was Mary. Mary Brown was her maiden name. Well, why did I know the name of my grandma? 
I stood at her gravesite New Mexico and dad was with me we were together alone he stood at that gravesite and he began to cry I'd never seen my dad cry before he began to cry he said, Raymond, everywhere you can see there were people and buggies on the day of, of mother's funeral. I said, why? Why? He said, because of what she did for Jesus. He said, when she was young, she was in a buggy accident. And her leg was fixed. Her knee would not bend. So she always walked with a limp. And she read in the Bible where we were supposed to be baptized by immersion. So she determined that she would find a way to be baptized find someone who would baptize her. And some meetings came into town and, and they went out to them and they called for a baptism that evening. And so Grandma decided that she would be baptized. So she went and, and during the meeting that evening, they called for the candidates who were asking to be baptized to come forward. And Grandma limped forward the baptism was in one of these big uh, horse-watering troughs. And of course, before they went to the baptism, the pastor's wife met with the women and talked with them and then said, well, let's kneel and let's pray. And Grandma said, I'm sorry, I can't kneel. My leg is injured in a buggy accident and I can't bend it. And the pastor's wife said, as you go into the baptismal tank this evening, ask Jesus and he will heal your knee. So grandma went into the baptismal tank on stairs, limping, had to be helped. She went to the pastor who baptized her. And as she was going under the water, she was crying out to Jesus, would you heal my knee? And when she came up out of that baptismal tank, she was dancing. She was healed. Now what she began to do, now that she had her strength, she would go to the neighbors who were having difficulty. And she would take their wash and do it by hand with a washboard. Or if a wife got sick, 
or was having a baby, she would go and stay with that family and cook for the men, take care of the children, be a mother. Because she said, that's what Jesus wants me to do. And everywhere she went, she testified that Jesus had healed her knee. And people responded. Oh, people responded. And so they came to her her funeral. In numbers they'd never seen before. Now, can I tell you, there is power in the name of Jesus. There is yet power. But we don't see much of that power today because we have not dealt honestly with Jesus about our sin. We still think we can live a normal life, eating and drinking, planning, go here, go there. I'll take this cruise. I'll go to this. I'll I'll do that. And our life is filled with all of our wonderful activities as we rush toward death. And we come up with some religious reasons to believe that we're saved, but there is not evidence in our life or in our language, in the way we perform our daily duties. There is not evidence that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Our lives instead reflect selfishness. It reflects self-centeredness. It reflects that I want to grab and growl for me and not lay my life down for Jesus and for others. There is no other name under heaven by which a man can be saved. But the only way a man can be saved is to deal with his sin, to deal with his prideful thinking that he's just okay. The priests, the rulers of that day, they thought they were fine. But Jesus didn't think they were fine. And it doesn't matter what we think, it matters what Jesus thinks. And today we're not seeing his power evidenced. Because we've not dealt with our sin yet. Until we deal with our sin, we're not going to see revival. The times of refreshing come because we've dealt with our sinful hearts. Now, what Peter was saying and his boldness was so out of character that it says, now observing the boldness of Peter and John and having perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and they fully recognizing them that they used to be with Jesus. They recognized they'd been with Jesus. Listen, if you will take the time to stop just doing all the mundane things of your life 
and following all of your plans and doing all the things so unconsciously in your life and you will deal honestly with your spiritual condition, with the apathy, with the indifference of your heart. If you will deal honestly and give the Lord the right to totally remove your sin, he will do so. Now the question they ask is, okay, what do we do with these men? We can't deny that they have done a great miracle. So how are we going to control them? Well, we're going to control them by threatening them and telling them that they must no longer speak in the name of Jesus. They must back away from their fanaticism. They must back away from this absolute commitment to belong to Jesus. They must learn how to get along again and be a part of our culture. And so they called them. And they commanded the disciples, Peter and John, not to speak at all or to teach in the name of Jesus. Now, do you understand? Peter and John only spoke in the name of Jesus. Peter and John only did what they did in the name of Jesus. They didn't do anything in any other name. What would happen if you began to do everything in the name of Jesus? And you were bold about it. So bold that people would have to notice and say, they only, they're, they're, they're crazy. They only do everything in the name of Jesus. They don't have a life outside of Jesus. They don't have any goals outside of Jesus. It's not in their heart to live like the world. It's not in Peter's heart or John's heart to walk like we walk. They're no longer coming to offer their sacrifices at the temple. They're no longer keeping all of the rituals that we've kept. They're totally changing. Now, it took time for all of this to happen. But they commanded them and they warned them. They threatened them. And their response... If it's right before God to hear you rather than God, you must judge. Okay, it's up to you to judge us. For we're not able to stop speaking what we saw and heard. And having threatened them further, they released them, finding no way they could punish them because of the people. For they were all glorifying God on account of the things having having happened. Now they go back to their own people and they tell them what the chief priests have said, what the threats were. And that whole congregation began to lift their voice to God with one accord 
in prayer. Remember that the New Testament church is first a prayer meeting. They didn't sing praises and worship God. They prayed. We would do well in the church today to turn off a whole bunch of music and start to pray. And this is what they prayed. You are God, the one having created the heaven and the earth and the sea and all things in them, who through the mouth of your servant David having said, the nations raged for what reason? And the people plotted empty things. The kings of the earth stood by and the rulers were brought together to the same place against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now in truth, both Herod and Pontius Pilate were gathered together with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel against your sovereign servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever things your hand and your purpose previously determined to happen. And so now, O Lord, please concern yourself on account of their threats and please grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness by stretching out your hand to heal and signs and wonders to come about through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after having prayed, the place in which they were assembled was shaken, and they were filled by the Holy Spirit. This is another infilling of the Holy Spirit. And they were all speaking the word of God with boldness. We've got to deal with our sin before we can speak with boldness. We've got to deal with our sin before it will be apparent today that the name of Jesus has any power. I'm not willing to be satisfied with the status quo of the American church. It's already dead. I'm looking for a new kind of church, a prayer meeting church, a people who are filled with the fire of the Holy Spirit, a people who will cry out to God and ask him to perform signs and wonders and miracles to testify that the name of Jesus still has power. These are signs pointing to the person of Jesus. I'm asking if he will do that. But we've got to deal with our sin. And we've got to give up our normal lives and begin doing everything in the name of Jesus. When you go to that office or you go to that computer or you go to dinner or you go to a family gathering, do so in the name of Jesus and find a way to contribute and to help and let the Holy Spirit convict you of your sin. And you'll begin to see signs and wonders. Well, we're out of time for today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I pray it's been helpful to you. Lord, I pray today that you will enable your people, giving us the strength to deal with our sin, 
that times of refreshing could come to the American church and that we would once more see signs and wonders that would bring glory to your name. Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen. Thank each one of you for listening. Pray for me. Pray for the National Prayer Chapel and for a new kind of church. God bless you, my brother and my sister. I'll talk to you soon. How can WA...